Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us that is showered on us always and in so many different ways. And we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd help us to profit by it as we look into it this morning. Help us to see and understand and remember the things that you want us to see in your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We are now beginning chapter 4 of Ephesians and hope to cover the first half of the fourth chapter of Ephesians today. I'm going to start out by reading the passage. Uh, Ultimately, I'll be reading this slide and one more, and it will be verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Okay. So, we go verse by verse now. Did I mention that the Apostle Paul liked to use long sentences? I believe I've mentioned that a few times, haven't I? He did, and that that shows that he's smart, see? Now, no editor would let you do that nowadays. They would, oh, what is this? It's it's not a run-on sentence. A run-on sentence is is certain things happen grammatically. It's just a long, complicated sentence that smart people like. But, uh, yeah, editors don't let you do it. So, we'll go through verse by verse. All right, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, here we begin another part of the book of Ephesians. So we heard for two chapters about God's amazing, awe-inspiring, wonderful plan of salvation, what God is doing in Christ for his glory to save, to save sinners and to uh, make us like Christ. And uh, then in chapter 3, Paul talked about his prayer for the believers in Ephesus and uh, what, what he wanted to see realized in them. And, of course, from that we can learn how to pray for our brethren 
and according to God's will and what God wants to accomplish in us. And now we come into chapter 4, and he starts getting to the, well, nitty-gritty is such a cliche, but down to the practicalities of, uh, of the Christian life. And when I say practical things, I, I don't mean that the other stuff isn't practical. Nothing is more practical than true doctrine and, and a true belief, true beliefs about God, knowing what is true and real about God. That's real practical. And in fact, that leads us to this. And those whole first two, three chapters have been all based on the idea that if we really knew, if we knew it, uh, the things that are true about our salvation and what God is doing for us through Christ, the rest would naturally follow. And in fact, it will. Some instruction is necessary so that we understand, well, what does God want us to do? But I remember what a preacher once said that I thought made a lot of sense. He said, I think we preachers waste a lot of breath and a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to preach goats into acting like sheep. And uh, ouch, that is, I'm afraid, a true statement. You know, people that don't have the inward drive and, and longing and yearning to, to be like Christ and to please God and just how can I please him more? And they don't have that. And, uh, you know, you can, you can lecture to them till you're blue in the face. Here's, what you need, here's how you need to live to please God. Here's how you can be more like Christ. And uh, they're not too interested in that. That doesn't move them very much. Uh, people respond if they have a motivation. Well, if we understand and we truly believe the things that are true in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, and, and we have realized those in our life, then we will have that motivation, and we'll be sitting here, tell me how, how, tell me how I can be more like Christ. Tell me what I can do to please God more. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> so if, since chapters 1 through 3 are tr- true, how should we then live, to borrow a phrase I heard someplace, how should we then live in the light of those facts? Walk worthy of the calling. Now, I know to a degree we, we tend to cringe any time we think of the idea of us being worthy because, of course, we're not worthy in the sense that we deserve it. We don't deserve uh, our salvation, to say the least, obviously. God's grace abounded to the chief of sinners when he saved uh, Paul. I'm tempted to say me if Paul hadn't already claimed it. Um, claim the status of chief of sinners, but you know what I mean. No, we're not worthy of it in the sense of deserving it, but walk in a way that befits one who has such a calling. Since God has called us as he has to the salvation that he has at the cost that he has provided it, since God has called us to that, then let's try to conduct our life in a way that's fitting and appropriate for someone who has been called to a salvation he didn't deserve at all. Someone who had no claim on salvation, who doesn't deserve to be here at all, and somehow is just because God is good. Well, how should a person like that live his life? Well, let's do it that way. Okay. Two, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. All lowliness. So the first effect of the awe-inspiring plan of salvation described in chapters 1 through 3 is that the believer's life is to be characterized by sincere and thorough humility. 
Again, I, I think like in the first chapter of Colossians, strengthen with might according to his glorious power and to all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And that sort of seems like a letdown, you know, strengthen with might, and, and one could almost become triumphalist. We're not supposed to be triumphalist. We're not supposed to be vaunting and look at us, aren't we powerful and great? No. Lowliness, real humility, that um, not necessarily that I'm bad, but that I'm just not important, that it's just not that important to, in the great scheme of things. I'm just a small little piece, small part, lowly. Gentleness, even under trials, I didn't put the Greek word in there, but the commentator, one commentator in the reading suggests that this implied a gentleness that persisted even under trials. So even when it's not convenient, even when we're not feeling well, even when we're, we didn't sleep well last night, we're feeling tired and cranky, uh, even when uh, uh, we're in pain or uh, things aren't going to suit us or we don't see how we can possibly get through our workload that day or we have forgotten three things that day and we're feeling frustrated or the computer will not do what we want it to do. I found that there are it's probably no greater test of one's sanctification than a computer that won't do what we want it to do. And then we have to be gentle to those around us. That doesn't come very easy. Reading through this, I kept getting the feeling, well, we've got our work cut out, don't we? <laughs> well, anyway, gentleness, long-suffering, patience in unpleasant circumstances, regardless of the reason for the circumstances. We, we suffer long without uh, becoming harsh or without uh, losing our gentleness and our sweet spirit. Bearing with, whoops, I don't want to do that. Uh, bearing with the, uh, where there is an akamenoi, uh, to bear up under, to, uh, to bear up under a load. Now, we don't like the, you know, bearing with one another or, or forbearing, as the old King James says, one another. And, you know, one doesn't like to think that, uh, my brethren might have to be bearing up under the load of having to get along with me. Uh, you know, that brother Woodworth, well, he is an experience. And the things he says up there, and we have to put up with it, and he will go off on that thing he's always going off on, and whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, that may try other people's patience, and, uh, and we have to bear up under it. And, of course, one doesn't like to think that one is, is one of the, you know, is something that someone else has to bear up under. Um, I think of uh, C.S. Lewis in writing his essay, The Problem with X. You know, you, you think of this problem person and, um, uh, you know, and all the difficulties you have with that problem person you have to put up with. And he says, yeah, but God, God sees all the people like that, and he sees one more than you do. <laughs> he sees you and the other things people have to put up with you. But so we're supposed to uh, put up with one another. And I know that maybe sounds too colloquial and maybe too negative, but there is a sense where we put up with each other. Maybe what sounds bad about putting up with one another is usually when we put up with people or we say we need to put up with people, we don't do it with a good, sweet, and loving spirit. But this is to be with the spirit of agape, and that is what forbearing or bearing with one another in love. The love there, of course, is agape. It's love that's not dependent on the person, the lovability of the target person who's being agaped, if I may put that word into an English past tense. Um, The person doesn't have to be worthy of love or or attractive to love. It doesn't have to be lovable at the moment. Of course, some of us would like to hope that we're lovable 
majority of the time, but there are moments, and even in our moments, you know, and, and when our brethren are having their moments and they're not maybe acting very lovable at the moment, yet we're supposed to put up with one another in a spirit of agape, with a sweet spirit, a good spirit. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring or trying may, may seem a little weak to us in English. It's been said that uh, you read these motivational things. Navy SEALs never say, I'll try. They either say, I'll do it or I won't do it. Because you don't say, I'll try. And it is true that sometimes we say, I'll try, and it's really a little bit of a cop-out. And we mean, yeah, I'll try, but I also know it's not possible. Well, that's not what we want here. We don't want that sort of perfunctory try. Yeah, I made the effort. I gave it a shot. No, this is giving all diligence, really getting after it. Uh, So uh, endeavoring, uh, really, really trying hard, trying as hard as we can. Spodadzontes is the Greek word there. And again, when I stick Greek words in there, I'm always apologizing this. But uh, what I would say if I were doing this or teaching this lesson over on campus, I'd say uh, the Greek, the spelling and pronunciation of the Greek words will not be on the exam. You don't have to remember those things. So why do I say them? I once was a a new teacher, and I guess I looked young. uh, I remember that semester... Uh, a visiting high school student mistook, was, was not certain whether I was one of the undergraduates or one of the visiting high school students. I think I looked pretty young at the time. But anyway, I had a middle-aged uh, woman in my class, and she, after class she came to me and was asking me about some obscure thing that I had just mentioned in passing in the lecture. And she said, I said, well, that's not going to be on the test, and you don't need to put that in your notes because it was really not something that belonged in the notes. And, and she said, why did you mention it if it didn't need to be on the test? Yes. Well, um, I might have looked young, but I did have a Ph.D. But why mention those things? That doesn't do me any good here, but because it's not in Bible, <laughs> for one thing. But no, the point was, I mention it to help your understanding and to give you some background. So if, if my hopes are realized when you go out of here, you won't necessarily be able to remember the spelling or pronunciation of any Greek word. fact is, I won't either. But uh, you'll, be, you'll remember, there was a Greek word, and I saw it, and I heard it, and he told us what it meant. And I don't remember what it looks like, and I don't remember how to say it. But I remember that it means, and um, so, spudadzontes, which I can barely pronounce, means really trying hard really earnestly, seriously, sincerely giving it your very best shot to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So that's the unity that the Holy Spirit has created. The Holy Spirit has given us all the same nature and the same status before God and the same privileges with God. So we should strive diligently to be united with each other in purpose and in mutual affection. So we have mutual affection toward one another and we have the same purpose. Now, that, you know, I could camp on verse 3 the whole time. I don't want to camp the whole time. I camp too long on verses anyway. But what can we say about that? That it's hard. We can say what makes it hard is that we have to have truth also. And we're to get to that later, but truth is important. And we don't want to have unity at the expense of truth. 
Francis Schaeffer wrote, uh, we, we must not choose between the holiness of God, and we could say the truth of God, too. That would fit together. The truth of God or the holiness of God and the love of God. You know, we must say, well, we're just going to be loving and we're going to forget the holiness of God or we're going to forget the issue of truth. That's not, that's not really God's love. That's not good. But on the other hand, we can't say, hey, we've got truth and we've got holiness and we just don't have to worry about love because that's, not, that's just ugly and that's not the way God is. He doesn't forget about love either. He's loving. You know, he, the Lord Jesus was full of grace and truth. And, and he, you know, that's, that's how God is and that's how we want to be. So we want to strive to be. And we'll get to that more later. But it, it is kind of, you know, with ping pong, you got that net out there on the table and you've got to hit the ball over the net. But you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to sell out and hit the ball over the net no matter what. You hit it off the ceiling and the other guy gets the point. If he doesn't, you know, it's got to come down on the table. So it's got to go over the net and it's got to drop down on the table. And that's the two things. And here we've got truth that we've got to hold to. And we'll hear more about that later. And we've also got this endeavor to keep unity. But that does mean that we need discernment. We need God's wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Feel it all the time. We need to be, I need to be asking for God's wisdom a lot. When do I need to take up a particular line of truth in my conversation, in, in teaching, when I'm on campus? Which truths are needed to be talked about then and which will be helpful and profitable at that time? Some things we can just uh, uh, set aside and just don't need to be talked about. Some things do, but maybe not in certain situations. And there are things I would probably share on Facebook uh, that, you know, in terms of a, a line of truth that I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, bring up here and because uh, it's for a different audience and vice versa. So wisdom and discernment as we just do our best and try our best to maintain unity and not have division within the church. Okay. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling. Five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Six, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Obviously, emphasizing unity. There are many reasons for unity. There are many uh, bases for uh, having unity. Well, why do we need to have unity? Well, there are lots of reasons. We're one body, the invisible universal church, that is, all those who are truly in Christ. The Lord knoweth them that are his. So that's uh, a reason for unity. We are actually one body. And I will grant that uh, there are people who are members of, who I believe, I'm, I'm convinced, are genuinely in Christ and on their way to heaven. And I will just say that I would have a really hard time. I would have a struggle in myself to worship in their churches with them. I would I would be doing it through gritted teeth. And I... Uh, they would just be getting blessed in the song service, and I would be praying that the Lord might not rain down fire from heaven on us just yet. <laughs> um, and I, I don't mean that necessarily God is even, I don't know whether I, God will decide whether he's angered. But anyway, we're, we are one body, and we want to maintain that unity, even if we have to bear with one another in agape. There's one spirit that is the Holy Spirit that indwells all believers. So everybody else who's genuinely in Christ, truly genuinely in Christ, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's a good reason for me to try to be and try, endeavor diligently all I can 
to be uh, to maintain a unity of purpose and if and mutual affection for that person there's one hope that's our hope is our confidence of salvation in Christ and there's only one basis you know, for that some we're not hoping you know one of us is hoping for for eternity in heaven and another one is hoping uh, to win the lottery that's not we don't have different hopes in Christ it, that's the hope we have in Christ that ought to unite us one Lord the Lord Jesus Christ uh, we have one faith, uh, one way of access to and union with the one Lord. We don't have, uh, you know, uh, those who are genuinely, truly, really, honestly in Christ. Uh, we, don't, uh, we are not divided into those who are saved by faith and those who are saved by works and those who are saved by keeping the Old Testament law because categories two and three that I just named there don't exist. We're all saved by grace through faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that ought to unify us. There's one baptism, that is all believers, those who are believed are, are then baptized and um, were baptized, uh, you know, to identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. One baptism, one God, right. I mean, we really do all worship the same God. Now, I know there are people who run around today and want to assert that we worship the same God with the Muslims, etc., etc. We don't, uh, but with all people who are genuinely, truly in Christ by repentance and faith and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we all do worship the same God, and that's a reason for unity. And uh, verse 7, each, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So again, each of us receives spiritual strength from the same source, from the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to move on because there's much to be covered Therefore, verse 8, he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Uh, the commentators struggle with this one. And when commentators struggle, they write a lot. And they, they go on at some length in several different uh, commentaries that are read. And I thought, I'm not getting anywhere with these commentaries. They're not getting anywhere fast. So I'd open up another commentary and see what this one had to say. And, uh, well, it was hard to get any light on this. So I won't claim that I have extracted all the truth there is to be extracted from this verse by a long shot. I don't think I've done that to any verse. And uh, I hope I've at least gotten a hold of something from here. did the best I could. This is a reference to Psalm 68:18, which in the New King James read, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. In the Old King James, it says, uh, even from thine enemies. And I think that is more um, comprehensible in this case, is easier to sort out than this one. Receiving gifts among men is maybe a little clears things up. Anyway, here is what I was able, here's what I got from all the commentaries and the verse and reading the verse, verses over a few times. So when Christ ascended into heaven, already victorious over death and sin and the grave, through his death on the cross, his burial, well, of course he was victorious over sin throughout his life, I might add, but he, you know, defeated the power of sin in the world and, and in us, defeated that power on the cross when he died for our sins and then he was buried 
and he rose again. So he was victorious over all that. And when he did that, he took, as it were, the spoils of the enemy's kingdom. Now, this is kind of figurative, but the psalm is, is poetry, and poetry is often figurative. Um, and he, so he, um, like, a, like a Roman general who goes out and defeats an enemy kingdom and sacks its capital city and goes through there and his, his army takes all kinds of spoils, all kinds of silver and gold and, and all kinds of expensive stuff, and they take it back by the wagon load, by the dozens of wagon loads back to Rome. And then that general has a triumph, a big victory parade in the streets of Rome, and he has, they tow the, all these wagons of spoils through the streets, and then they're distributed to people, the people like that. And they're, so they give gifts. So they took spoils from the enemy and gave gifts to men. So what's going on here? Okay, well, again, best I can sort it out. This, among Bible truths, this may be not right in the category of the ones I have greatest confidence in. You know, salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I'm really sure of that. I'm really confident of that. This um, might be on shakier ground, but here's what I was able to get. Okay, when Christ died and he was buried, of course, he was buried in the earth. And then it is at least one interpretation that he went to the abode of the dead, Sheol, to the part of the abode of the dead, referred to as paradise, which was the abode of the righteous dead, or the believing dead, the saints of the Old Testament, who were in Abraham's bosom, paradise or Abraham's bosom, and he led them out, thus led captivity captive, and led all, all those who were, cap, who, were, who were there, and led them then into actual heaven. I'm not going to stake a lot on, on that. I'm not going to stake my soul on that belief, but I've heard it. It makes sense. I've heard it taught. It makes sense to me, and it might be true. And that might be the interpretation. And then, at any rate, at any rate, he, uh, in defeating the devil uh, and the power of sin, he took that as a spoil. So as it were, that's the wagon load of, of treasure that he brings back from his great victory is that he defeated the power of sin and now he gives gifts to men. You notice there's he, he received gifts from men and he gives gifts to men. So he received the plunder of his victory and he gives gifts to men, the gift being the grace that enables us to have victory over sin, and to have power for Christian service. I think that's what that means. <laughs> anyway, that was a hard one. And, um, yeah, okay. Nine and ten are kind of an, are an explanation on eight. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth, at least his burial in the ground, in a, you know, in the tomb. And, and possibly this descending into Sheol uh, also. And then he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In other words, Paul is saying the one referred to in Psalm 68 verse 18 is the Lord Jesus. That is a reference to the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is explaining to us here. Okay. Difficult, difficult verses for me. 
Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Praise the Lord, the verses are not all difficult, and a lot of them are pretty clear, so I'm thankful for that. This one, I think I understand much better. So, he gave, he himself, emphasis on he himself, that it is, it is the Lord who calls some to serve him in various capacities. They said, well, isn't it true that sometimes a church, well, a church does call a pastor? We use that terminology, and in a sense, that's true. It, it hires a pastor. It invites him to come and, and be a pastor at that church. But that's, they're inviting him to come and minister at that church. But that he is, any of these things here, a pastor teacher, an evangelist, a prophet, uh, that is God's doing, and God makes people that. So the church can't take somebody that God hasn't made or called uh, to be a pastor-teacher or an evangelist or a prophet and make him into one. And the church, because God does that. And, uh, and we might add, I, might, I guess I might add that, uh, you know, I, I guess I've, I've over the years seen preachers and sometimes parents try to make uh, of a young person uh, a, a pastor or a missionary or something like that. And preachers and parents can't, can't do that. They can give their encouragement, such as it is. But uh, they can't make someone that because the Lord makes them. He gives that, gives that grace, gives that ability to people. So he himself does apostles, apostolos, apostolos, which is, you can see it's our word apostle is right from that. Apostle means someone who had seen the risen Lord and uh, was commissioned and sent by God to bear witness to him. Now, obviously, everyone who saw the risen Lord after his death, burial, and his resurrection is now uh, in heaven. So there is no one on earth today who is an apostle. Uh, the ministry of the apostles today is through the scriptures, because all of the New Testament scriptures written either by an apostle or under the auspices and direction and supervision of an apostle. And so uh, God gave some to be apostles, and uh, we enjoy their ministry today in the written words of the Bible, which are, God, of course, God-breathed, but the apostles ministered them to us. Then uh, prophets, prophetas, obviously, again, the word comes, you know, our word comes right from the Greek. And those are, are those who proclaim God's message. Now, we tend to think of prophets as people who foretell the future. Well, that's true when God's message at the moment is to foretell the future. And when God gives a message about the future and the prophet proclaims God's message, then the prophet is foretelling the future. Of course, you know what God said about prophets uh, who say that they prophesy in the name of God. If anything that they prophesy is not true, then they are false prophets. There is... Um, well, there's one particular movement within, um, I don't know if it's, I should say, evangelicalism, within those who claim the name of Christ today, in which they have many prophets, uh, as they believe, and uh, they say that it's a, fine if their prophets bat, you know, a good, nice batting average. I don't know what they have to bat to stay in the prophet league or something, but uh, they can bat 400, 500, and that's great for a prophet, but God said his real prophets had to bat 1,000 on the accuracy of what they foretell about the, the future. So uh, someone who proclaims God's message. Evangelists, euangelista, euangelistas, um, again, we can see, maybe it's a little less clear in the pronunciation, but that word also comes right over from the Greek evangelist. 
And uh, euangelion is the good news, and euangelistas, or that's plural actually, are those who bring good news. So someone who brings good news. By the way, there can be heavy, heavy overlap, almost has to be overlap, doesn't there? Because someone who really brings good news would surely also be proclaiming God's message. So in that sense, uh, an evangelist would have to be a proclaimer of God's message, too. I suppose you could have a prophet who's a proclaimer of God's message and say, you know, God's going to judge this country if we don't turn around. And that in itself is not good news. That's sort of the bad news that you have to recognize before you can enjoy the good news. But anyway. And then there's pastors and teachers, and that's poimenas and didaskalus. And that's shepherds and teachers. Notice I said shepherds and teachers. Pastor means uh, shepherd. We think of pastoral, and sometimes, depending on what our background is, uh, if our background is you know, in the church, oh, pastoral, that means pertaining to pastors. Well, it does mean that. Or we think of pastoral, uh, if we're thinking of uh, classical music, I might think of Beethoven's pastoral symphony. What is that, number seven, number eight? I can't remember. Seven or eight. Maybe, unless it's four. But I, I always get those confused. But anyway, pastoral. And of course, when Beethoven wrote his pastoral symphony, he didn't mean it was a symphony about uh, Christian teachers. <laughs> um, he meant it was a symphony about uh, past, uh, scenes in pastures. So uh, bucolic scenes where the cows are all out there grazing and the sheep are grazing in the pasture. Now, um, so that's not the same thing, but we kind of use it the same. Now, I remember one dear old uh, saint of the Lord uh, back in a church that my father pastored in, in uh, Rockford, Illinois, Brother Hubbard. Uh, I, I'm guessing Brother Hubbard's with the Lord now. But uh, he, uh, he used to uh, refer to my father as Pastor Woodworth. <laughs> and uh, I, I used to inwardly <clears throat> get a chuckle out of that. But uh, now my dad was not a, a grassy field that you turn the cattle out into. But uh, the words have the same root, and that's because uh, pastors and teachers means shepherds and teachers. So what's, what's a shepherd? Well, it's someone who tends the sheep and feeds the sheep and leads the sheep and protects the sheep. That's what a, a shepherd does. So this is a, a pastor, what a, a pastor in the church is supposed to do is... Uh, protect God's little ones. <clears throat> Just like was it Cornelius Van Til said, he took up philosophy to protect Christ's little ones, and that's what a, a, the shepherd, the pastor, is to do. And also, oh, didas, didaskalus, you can see there the didactic, like our word didactic comes from that, a teaching device, a didactic device. Well, uh, <clears throat> like telling you the Greek words. You won't remember the Greek words, but you remember there was a Greek word and it meant this. At least I hope that works. So I did a scholar, somebody who teaches. And the thing about pastors and teachers there is it's not two different roles in the church. Um, again, smart guys who actually know Greek uh, and uh, write that uh, I think it's, I, I'm not sure now, they didn't say why, but I think it's because of the absence of uh, definite articles uh, before these nouns maybe. Or just the way, and also the absence of uh, some, I think, before them, that it's um, it's one it's one role, pastor uh, pastor teacher or shepherd teacher is is a one one role. It's the same person. That's the role of shepherd teacher. So 
you know, it's not, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. No, he gave some pastors and teachers, and that's, they're both. So pastors and teachers, both. So um, I don't know if all teachers, well, I don't know if all Bible teachers are pastors, but all pastors are Bible teachers. Shepherd teachers, it's one role. And um, I know in some churches they'll say, well, we've got the elder for this and the elder for that and the elder for the other thing. And this guy is the teaching elder, and this guy is the, the, I don't know, the ruling elder or something. Well, actually, all elders are teachers. Uh, again, I don't know that all Bible teachers are elders. In fact, I'm sure they're not. But all elders are Bible teachers. All elders in the church are Bible teachers. Because an elder, one is not supposed to be an elder unless one is found to be apt to teach. So uh, that's a qualification, not the only one, but a qualification for an elder. I happen to believe that shepherd teacher equals elder equals overseer or bishop. I happen to believe that's the same uh, office. Uh, Our word bishop, it's not in this passage, but bishop means overseer. And our word pastor means shepherd. And a shepherd is supposed to be a teacher. So, uh, and I... I think it's actually talking about the same office, elder, overseer, and shepherd teacher, uh, the, same, the same role. But um, I know there's difference of opinion about that. Okay, onwards. Time is fleeting, and we've still got more verses to go, and they're good ones. Well, they're all good, especially good ones, ones that I think I understand. That, that makes them fun, anyway. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, one nice thing about the New King James here is they've dropped the extraneous com- comma. Extraneous comma that found its way into the Old King James. The Old King James goes, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, and on. But there shouldn't be a comma between saints and for the work of the ministry, as though it's the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers who are, one, equipping the saints, for what? We don't know. Two, doing the work of the ministry. They are, but they're not the only ones. And three, edifying the body of Christ. Whereas what is happening in this sentence, I mean, it's obvious that these people, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, are doing the work of the ministry, but that's not what happening. It's not what's happening in this verse, in this sentence. What's happening in this verse, in this sentence is the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers are equipping the saints so that the saints can do the work of, the, of, the work of ministry. That is, so that they can pass on and hand out the good things that are given to them. As the, saints, as the saints are going into all the world, they are teaching others and making others into apostles, or, or excuse me, into not apostles, into disciples. There we go. That's, that's where my wires crossed. Into disciples of the uh, Lord Jesus Christ, making disciples. So, for the work of the ministry. Equipping, here is katar, katar, uh, tismon, katar tismon, get the accent right. 
And uh, that means bringing into a condition of fitness. That's actually word for word Strong's concordance definition of katartismon, equipping, bringing into a condition of fitness. In Matthew 4.21, this word katartismon is used for mending nets. That uh, Peter and John had their boats up on the beach and they were katartismon, well, that's not conjugated correctly, they were katartismon their nets. Um, I don't. I can't do that. Um, anyway, uh, that word. So, okay. So, equipping the saints is like mending the nets, repairing what's lacking, fixing what needs to be fixed, fixing up the torn spots, the broken spots, um, repairing, correcting, uh, equipping, getting ready bringing into a condition of fitness for use and fitness for service. So, um, again, the saints here are all genuine believers in Christ. We're not, not, not graven images that we worship. But uh, they are, uh, all believers are called to be saints. Equipping them for the work of the ministry. So, through the ministry of Apostles, which is now available exclusively through God's written word. Prophets, those who proclaim God's message. Evangelists, who tell good news. The good news of salvation through Christ. And shepherd teachers. The saints are being equipped, mended, brought into a condition of fitness for active Christian service and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Think of edifying, we think of an edifice. We don't use that word a lot, but uh, we worship in an edifice. Well, it sounds a bit pretentious for this humble, humble place of gathering, but uh, yeah, it's a building. So uh, building up, or uh, I should have said constructing, that's actually a typo there, I didn't mean construction, but constructing as of a building. So Constructing the body of Christ, building the body of Christ. Okay. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, in other words, until we get to the point, we, as a group, of being a mature, full-grown, grown-up church, composed of mature, full-grown, grown-up believers. Finally, making real. You could say realizing, but we use that word so differently today that that wouldn't carry the message we want. But making real in their fellowship with one another and in the way they live their lives, all that it means to be in Christ. So, uh, Yeah, I said, I kept reading these verses thinking, well, we've got our work cut out, don't we? Uh, We've got a ways to go. Now, this is the kind of thing, I think, um, that you could always do it better. You know, no matter where you were, you could always get better at this. There's never been a church here on this earth, this side of the millennium, which we all are, aren't we? Where we couldn't say, and we can do it better next year than we've done it this year. Right. So in that sense, 
um, it's not a maturity. And, you know, you think of in your life, there is a point where you're a grown-up and you're not, uh, uh, you're not a child or an adolescent anymore. And you're a grown-up. But, you know, you're not going to be a very good grown-up if you, if you take it that being a grown-up means I never learn anything anymore. I never uh, get better at anything anymore. I never walk closer to the Lord. I never gain any more wisdom than I have. You should have seen me when I first got to be a grown-up. Oh, my. No, you should not. <laughs> and I think I count you all as blessed. Um, you didn't have to put up with some of the foolishness that Ms. Woodworth had to put up with uh, in those days. Um, and thankfully, her memory is not as clear as mine. I don't know if other, I have better memories than other people, or I just remember the foolish things that I did and said and, and things like that, or sometimes the mean things. But uh, no, you know, we get to a point of maturity, and then we go on learning and gaining wisdom, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't know if we're going to go on growing and maturing in heaven or not. Maybe so. That would be great. I don't know. However the Lord wants to do it. But you know, here in this life, we're always going on. We want to get to that point of maturity. uh, And you think of maturity in, in our life also as one of those things. It's hard to say, I've got it. I am there. I am mature. Um, I'm thinking by 61 or 62, I might, I might be in pretty good shape, I hope. I'm kind of being facetious with you, but you understand what I'm saying, that as we continue to learn and grow, and we look back on ourselves of a few years ago or a few decades ago, oh dear, oh my, I do... Um, I'm thankful for all my friends who can't remember the things I said back then. Uh, But um, anyway, um, we want to be that mature, full-grown church. Go on growing, but be mature and full-grown and full of mature and full-grown believers. The perfect man, there's two words there that we could take in a wrong sense. A perfect man... Uh, first of all, per- perfect, again, we tend to take this in an absolutist sense. It's not meant in an absolutist sense. It means that has, that has come to maturity, that is full-grown. You might have a full-grown stalk of corn in your backyard with ears of corn on it, but can you say it is a perfect stalk of corn? Now, it's the stalk of corn in, in Platonic heaven. There's no such place. But anyway, you know, Plato's ideal stalk of corn, it's not, is it? But it's a mature stalk of corn. So perfect means a, an adult, a grown-up, mature Christian. The word man could also be misleading. It doesn't, it does, it's not stressing the maleness of the being. That's not what the stress is on. Yes, I know, man is a male word. Well, actually, it can be generic uh, before the feminists got loose. But anyway, it's, it's uh, <clears throat> not stressing maleness. It's stressing adultness. So until we are a mature, fully grown adult Christian. And that has nothing to do with our years in this life necessarily, but with our maturity in the Lord. Uh, So, um, yes, okay, good. Got to push on, got to push on. Two minutes left. uh, Verse 14, and I like this verse. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. We've got two, two word pictures going on here side by side, don't we? 
we've got the word picture of children. Okay, Now, he's really writing this mostly to adults. And I'm, most of the people I'm talking to are, um, are yeah, I guess adults. I, um, I don't know whether Christiane is older than Mary or vice versa. I'm not asking. But um, never ask ladies' age. But, um, but uh, you know, I think you're pretty much adults. And I don't know who all is listening on, online. That's fine, whoever is. But so we're really not talking about that, that be no more children. Uh, it doesn't mean that. He didn't want children to be saved. He does want, of course, he wants children to be saved. Uh, but that we don't live our Christian life as if we were perpetual uh, children in the bad traits that children have, in the weaknesses that children have. He says, I, 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 want, I don't want you in your Christian life to display the kind of weakness in your Christian life that little children have. Because little children are uh, easily uh, led astray. We need to be careful about leading children astray. We need to be very careful about that. Uh, There's a tendency, if a child trusts you, they'll believe anything you say. And uh, so we need to be careful about leading them astray. And the Lord promised very severe consequences for those who lead children astray. But children are easily led astray one way or another, and they'll believe all kinds of things. Now, I think back to my childhood, and again, I can remember a lot of things. I can remember when I sincerely believed some of the most outlandish things. And I just really thought they were true. I mean, I just, in all honesty, believed they were true. And I, I know there are some of those things that nobody ever had to tell me. Steve, that's ridiculous. That's not true. And it's got a number of years older. It's like, you know what? That's crazy. That was never true. That was just ridiculous. And that's how children are. So we don't want to be that way in our Christian walk. The other word picture that's going on here is that of a ship in the sea that's, that's being hit by waves and winds and uh, is not really in control of itself, either because of an unskillful hand at the helm or the tiller or because of unskillful management of the sails or just because the, uh, the weather conditions are far too intense for that vessel. And so you think of a a ship that's just, it's, uh, it's way out there beyond where it, it uh, should be. And a, and a big storm, like a hurricane or something, or, and, and the waves are real big, and it's just tossing that ship around. And the guy at the tiller might be struggling to bring the head of the ship around into the next wave, but it won't go. That ship doesn't have, it's not in control right now, and it's just at the mercy of the waves. It's being tossed this way and that. Of course, you know that a ship or boat that's in that situation is tremendously vulnerable. It's in terrible danger. A ship that is no longer under the control of its helm because it gets tossed broadside to a wave and it can't get the, the crew can't get the head around, the bow around to meet that next wave, and there's every chance that next wave is just going to roll it right over and uh, come right in over it, and that, that boat is done or that ship is done. And uh, we're, we're in a very vulnerable state to sustain all kinds of damage and loss, uh, unimaginable damage and loss, if we're being tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Again, so don't be like the children in the weaknesses of children. Now, we've heard elsewhere in the scripture there are, there are things about children that we are to emulate, you know, uh, receiving as a little child receives, like have the kind of faith towards uh, uh, the Lord Jesus that a little child has towards a good parent. Do that. Be like a child that way. But don't be like a child this way where, where there's no stability 
and they just that you can persuade them of anything and and you know they're they're going one way one time and they're going another way another time they lack of stability don't be that way in your christian walk don't be easily fooled don't be lacking discernment in every crazy idea that comes along comes down the pike about well whatever don't be that way don't be that way and trickery of men and you know there are plenty of wicked people out there cunning deceitful people out there who are more than ready they're just eager to mislead us to lead us the wrong way and and for their to get our money to get our votes to get our work to get us into their cult or whatever that may might be uh to uh I'll get all kinds of things, right? We've seen this sort of thing. This sort of they which creep into houses lead captive silly women laden with sins. Oh, and we've seen we've seen uh, purportedly Christian leaders like that. And oh, it's been a sad thing. And some of these, you know, that oh, did you hear about? I could I could run down a list of names. There have been some that have impacted the homeschool movement in a big way in the last uh, 10, 15 years. T- terrible, sad cases. And there have been some cases in recent times um think of a, a christian leader of who's great in the area of apologetics and and loving god with all your mind and sad sad case horrifying case um of sin there and and uh, I, I hope that that doesn't lead up mislead people and cause me tossed about we don't want to be that way instead speaking the truth in love May grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Speaking the truth in love is one word, aletheontes. Aletheontes, one word. And it's to speak truth, do truth, maintain truth. We're to be followers of truth, speakers of truth, uh, um, seekers after truth, maintainers of truth, doers of truth, truth people. I'd say truthers if that didn't lead us up to uh, the slight of men and cunning craftiness and being led astray by all kinds of... There's a, If you're not familiar with it, there are people called truthers who have been led astray after an outrageous lie. But, uh, no, we're supposed to be the real, the real genuine truthers. We're all about truth. Buy the truth, sell it not. That's, I'm, and we want that, don't we? We want the truth. And God's word is truth, you know? How can we know truth? God's word is truth. That we may become, may become mature Christians who in every area of our being live out what it means to be in Christ. So, verse 16, and then I have to close. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, from whom is Christ, uh, causes growth of the body of, of, of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So Christ is the source the source of life, the source of power, the source of strength. Christ is the connector, binds us together. Christ enables the parts to work together, all of us. Christ causes the body to grow, as he said back there at the end of chapter 2. We're being all being built together into a temple for the Lord to dwell in. Christ causes the body to grow into his temple in agape, in love. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts today. We ask you to bless the service to follow. Help your servant as he brings us your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.